Masters of Divinity. I am your moderator, JP. Um, and I'm here with Father Chuck. And uh, we're just talking about running. Running magazines. Not I feel like... running magazines, but magazines about running. Runner's World. I, 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 it's, it's almost like if... It's almost if, if like you did a magazine about water. Like drinking water. Like, <laughs> I'm sure there is. Like I'm a drinking like you're a drinking water connoisseur and so you have like like a magazine about drinking water. Like I just I don't feel like there's enough content there for 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 twelve issues a year. I think Fiji That's would make feeling. sure of it. Fiji it's just all like pro Fiji propaganda. Hey, here's something infuriating. Yeah. Speaking of water. Um We're so out of it. Well, that, but, um, well, actually, I guess we're kind of getting more of it, right? Because the ice caps are melting. Yeah. But, um, but the, um, but Nestle, Nestle is, wants to buy Florida's water, um, from Ginny Springs up in, up in North Florida, um, and, um, and, 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 and bottle it and sell it because apparently they've already been doing that and they want to extend their contract. And do you know how much money they paid to do this, to get like millions of gallons of water out? That enough that has enough that has depleted the output of Ginny Springs by thirty to forty percent in the past several years. Oh my God, uh, one hundred eighteen dollars. What they paid a one hundred eighteen dollar fee to whatever whatever water management thing um, to be able to siphon the water out from the aquifer in wow. North Florida, and so you know, so Nestle, which is um, of course a famously ethical company, um, yeah. As soon as you said like you want to hear something infuriating. As soon as you said you wanted to say something infuriating about water, I had a feeling you were going to say Nestle. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're, like, notoriously corrupt. Yeah. And I think they have been screwing over California for some time. Yes. Yes. They, um, yeah. Especially during their uh, big shortage they had a few years ago. Uh, I don't know if they're still experiencing that. Probably not. Probably not as bad as it used to be. Yeah. Like, do you remember when they had to, like, they couldn't even, like, like take showers? Right. Like. No, yeah. And then and then Nestle was just like, yeah, give us more. <laughs> right. I don't care. Bottled water is such an infuriating concept. Like, on one hand, it's helpful, right? If you're traveling overseas, bottled water is amazing. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, you know, of, of, of the, tra- of, of the of the traveler symptoms that happens when you drink unfamiliar water. Um, like it's super amazing bottled water in that regard and being able to get, you know, water to people who live in, you know, kind of dry, dusty places, you know, so there is some benefit to it, but it is kind of remarkable that we took this free substance that we support, that we pay for when our municipal, you know, we pay with our tax dollars to ostensibly have access to clean, fresh water to drink. Um, we've taken that, we've, told people that it's that what comes out of the pipe is dirty and then of course through neglect it has become dirty um yeah but it we tell we told people in the 80s that it was dirty and you needed to buy this water that we put in plastic bot- bottles and we were just like okay that's cool like but yeah i like that i like that idea and now look, look where we're at um I just, it's an amazing, and now we're like, actually, if you just buy, if you just buy like a bottle, you can just get the water like for free anywhere you go. And we're like, and like, and then you're branded as some kind of like kooky, like some kind of kooky 
you know, liberal person be bad person. I don't know what you, but for, for suggesting these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. It always just kind of depends on where you go. If you ask me, Um, I'm not, I don't, I do not drink the water here at the farm. Right. Uh, We have a well and uh, just a bunch of bad experiences as a kid (laughs) drinking the water from here, like getting sick all the time. And um, just like, I mean, you could just turn the tap on and put a glass under it, and it's just like floaties everywhere. Right. And uh, so I, I only drink tap. I only drink bottled water here. But also, I remember going to when I was living in California. When I was living in Los Angeles. Um, we were all kind of living off of bottled water, and then I was starting to run out of money, and I was like, I can't afford a whole lot of things, and I and I, I cut out buying water. I was like, I'm just going to suck it up and try the tap water. And it was delicious. <laughs> it was delicious. I've, I Best tap water I've ever had in my life. But, of course, that also comes from after living in Florida for, like, most of my life, which just has, like, horrible tap, horrible tasting tap water. Except for Boca. Apparently, for Boca. Boca, apparently Boca Breton has like the, some of the cleanest water in the country. Kana, Kana did this deep dived because we were we were talking about because we were using a Brita filter when we first moved down here we lived in West Palm because the tap water was awful and so we were looking at buying one of the ones you can attach to a nozzle when we moved here on campus in Boca and she was as she was doing the research she was like oh oh like Boca's water is like apparently famously clean according to like all these like these this research and stuff that's out there and and it's yeah but it's weird because like almost every other municipality around us the water is not that good yeah, Boca is pretty uh, wealthy, and the other places around you are not so much. Right, right. <laughs> a little bit of economic disparity going on there. Um, yeah, just a bit. Um, but yeah, I was just kind of I was I couldn't believe how how delicious the water was in L.A. Uh, I would I would get I would bottle it in glass bottles and keep it in the refrigerator, and I was like, guys, you got to try this water. <laughs> uh. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta try this water <laughs> so i guess we could actually have like a water connoisseur magazine now. we probably could i mean you know <laughs> it doesn't have to be I, I mean you could think up a lot of things to talk about water every month i'm sure there's a you i mean you could just you could just trash talk nestle for the entire run, run of the magazine that's, that's true that's true <laughs> well so this actually kind of leads us into our topic a little bit uh, the the perfection that is water. Uh, well, that and, I, I well, yes, that. But also, well, you you introduce and I'll. Okay, so this week, uh, Father Chuck and I have decided to talk about perfection and something we've we've uh, tossed around uh, for a while. This topic, uh, kind of a broad topic, but uh, we're just gonna we're just gonna dive in and talk about just sort of what we think is perfect. Uh, how we define perfection and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so let's let's go ahead. How are you sort of seeing this connecting to what we're already talking about? Because I'm interested in that. Well, because the the uh, we have been talking about this topic, uh, talking about doing this topic for what like two years now, almost. Yeah, it's been a while. Like this was one of the ones that was fairly early on in the podcast that we had kicked around as a, as a possibility. Um, but it was it was just the other day I was I was just you know I'm I'm a surfer and so I'm you know reading surfing things and stuff and I and I got to thinking about and I saw this photo on Instagram of um 
of um, um, Kelly Slater, who is a famous pro surfer, sort of the Michael Jordan of professional surfing, um, had this, you know, like 40 year career or something as a surfer. Um, he built a wave pool in Lemoore, California, out in the middle of the desert. Um, built it way out in the middle of nowhere to experiment um, with this idea of being able to create a repeatable, perfect wave. And it's made news. Chances are, you, chances are, somewhat our listeners um, or viewers have seen Kelly Slater's uh, wave pool, and um, it, it just got a lot of people buzzed uh, talking about it in the past few years, uh, lamenting it, uh, talking about you know, is it the future? Is it a dismal future? All this kind of stuff. But I got that as I was thinking about it a little bit recently. It got me thinking about well, what what makes it perfection? Like what makes it perfect? Right. Wait, so what makes it perfect in terms of what Kelly's getting at is the shape of the wave itself, mm-hmm. is that it is a it is a wave that breaks without any kind of sectioning it. it the lip the lip curls over in a consistent rate. Um, you can control the height of the wave. You can control um, the the way that the I mean, wind isn't even really a factor in the shape of the wave all that much uh, the way they've designed it. And so in terms of its actual surfable presentation, it is perfect. But in order to achieve that, he had to build a $30 million complex out in the middle of a desert where there is no water, pump the water in, and then he has to basically run a freight train back and forth along this rectangular pool in order to generate the energy to produce the wave. And so – and so – I mean, good for him in terms of uh, in terms of um, in terms of his environmental impact. It is a completely 100% clean energy. Um, it is a the, the train is an electric vehicle. That was actually kind of why what I was starting to look into a little bit was whether or not it was a diesel run vehicle or something. But it is electric, um, and he's worked with PG and E um, to get um, to to get you know the whole thing to be completely um, renewable energy or green energy or whatever. But it got me thinking about okay, so the shape of the wave is perfect, but is it really perfect if it has to be sort of imposed? Right. And you're, you know, what what makes perfection? Because sure, the shape of the wave is perfect, but when you're out there, what are you looking at? Because you know, you're you're looking at this basically this train with a whole bunch of hydrofoils under it running back and forth in front of you. You're not looking at a reef. You're not looking at a horizon. You're not looking at a city skyline or a mountain range or any of the other things that we'd see in any and in, in, you know all the surf spots in the world. Um, so, so that gets me to thinking a little bit about the, the 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 very criteria of what we mean by perfection, right? And is it a relative concept? Is it something completely subjective? You know. So and that and that, that got me thinking, and, and that's why I messaged you. I said I think we should talk about this. So, so, so that, so that's the jump, right? We were talking about California having no water. Here's this wave pool in the middle of a California desert, right? And we're calling it perfect, exactly. But is it? Yeah. Hold on a second. I have a dog to take care of. The dog has thoughts. The the dog is desperate to give its opinion on perfection. That's what's happening. JP really should invite the dog to be on the podcast. That's what should happen. Um. You can ask the dog questions and it can bark back at us. Um, that that I think would work. That's uh, 
That's chaos theory. Sorry about that. A very ornery uh, Chewini who barks at the garbage truck every time it comes. So. Because the because I just <laughs> just the more I think about dogs are ridiculous <laughs> they, and in general. But yeah. the best part is that okay, so the so the garbage truck arrives and the dog barks the garbage truck. Ostensibly, its its protective instinct is kicking in and it is trying to warn off a predator. But it has obviously the Chewini has no concept of the size differential that we're dealing with here between a garbage truck and a Chewini. And just the more I think about it, the more absurd this is. That is, uh, and that's just who she is. She barks at anything that makes a loud noise. She doesn't like it. And she will go after it. She attacks vacuum cleaners. She she chases after cars. She attacks uh, the food processor whenever my mom uses it. I mean, she goes nuts after the food processor. She hates that. Um, Hair dryers. Thunder. I've seen her. I've seen her. It's like it'll start to thunder. She goes, thunder again, another thunder, and then she'll just like lose it and run outside and start barking like at the air, <laughs> like railing at God. <laughs> that's yeah. That's uh, that's Chanel. That's uh, I. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay, so a lot of dogs, a lot of dogs bark at thunder. Yeah, a lot of dogs Maybe- cower. Thunder. Well, cowering, I can understand being sort of, you know, it, 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 the instinct of like a, of a storm coming can kick in, right? The idea of like huddling down or whatever. But like dogs that bark at thunder makes me wonder if maybe evolution is wrong. Because <laughs> you would think after all these millennia of us, inst- of, 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 of these animals being exposed to things like thunder, they would by now have evolved an awareness of what it is. And that it's not a threat to them. Or maybe just the years of being domesticated, you know. That's true. Maybe, yeah, this breeding domestication has has sort of bred evolutionary benefits out of them. (laughs) Yeah, probably. We are doing like, it's like the opposite of natural selection. Right, exactly. Yeah. We're Um, making them more like us. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are. And there's these, sorry, this is completely off topic, but there's these, but kind of, I think we can bring this back around actually, Probably. but there's this video that I've seen a couple of videos I've seen of cat of, of cats on the internet. The cats have been walking on their two legs. Oh yeah. I've and I'm wondering, are, ca- are cats evolving? <laughs> are we going to have bipedal, are, like our grandkids, great grandkids going to like know about bipedal cats? Is that going to be like a normal thing? Uh, Garfield is the future of, of uh, the cat. That's that's what we're looking Garfield. forward to. Jeez. Okay, so perfection. Perfection. Uh, Garfield. Garfield. <laughs> nope. Not really. Now, now, uh, Garfield minus Garfield might be perfection. Yeah, that's actually. I actually will agree with that that it might be. That is that should be like in a museum, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Um. So okay. So getting back to this uh, perfection uh, guff. Uh, we we're talking about yeah. Kelly, Kelly Slater's wave, and he said he's, he makes the perfect wave, Shaka Bra. Um, so, it, what what is a perfect wave? Like, it, it's that. I mean, I can you kind of describe like the shape of it, but like, we can't. I mean, is a perfect wave 
easier to surf? Like, why, what, why is it perfect? See, now, that this is where things are interesting. So um, we're going to do a little deep dive in a movie that I think you have seen. Okay. Have you seen The Endless Summer? Yeah. Okay, Bruce uh, Brown's been, Endless it's been Summer. years, but yeah. Yeah, so Bruce Brown's Endless Summer was the first legitimate surf movie that entered into the mainstream. Um, Bruce Brown, who made these, you know, surf movie reels, he used to show at high schools and stuff, decided to make one with sort of a Hollywood attempt, like with the attempt at getting it into Hollywood. And so they made it into sort of a travel log. And the initial pitch was to try to chase summer around the world. So the idea of being, you know, eternally in summer, um, but it was also it also sort of turned into the search for the uh, the global search for the perfect wave, and in that movie they encounter a wave in in South Africa at a place called Cape Saint Francis, which of any surfer who's ever seen the Endless Summer um, knows this wave, and it has entered into our imagination of what a perfect wave is, and that's what he talks about in the movie that it's a perfect wave. Um, in that it it is a right hand breaking barreling wave is about chest high when you're riding the wave and there are no sections what we mean by section is that as the wave curls over it does so in a consistent trying to get my fingers in a consistent pattern rather than in chunks which is what most waves do and so you have to learn how to navigate sections um and it's these insane long rides that these guys have on these ways. Two guys, Robert August and Mike Henson and, um, and Bruce himself rides it. And what's, what he does in the movie is Bruce Brown says that they stumbled upon this wave, this remote wave, just, uh, you know, just pretty much outside some sand dunes in, in, in South Africa when it's uninhabited, uninhabited section of South Africa. And he says the fishermen there tell them that, Oh yeah, the waves are funny little things. They look like that every day. And so it puts this idea in our heads, oh my gosh, there's this place in the world where the waves break like that every day, mm-hmm. just like that. A couple of factors to consider, which I'll get to in a moment. But what we've learned in the years since is that Bruce Brown lied <laughs> in order to sell the movie. The, they happened to catch that spot on a fluke. It has maybe twice more since the filming of that movie broken like that hmm. um and and even the people like people continually go to check it and now there's like a there's like a there's like neighborhoods on near the beach where it's at now and that kind of affects the wind patterns and stuff coming off the sand dunes that's a whole other thing but um and people who have been traveling there for years and years and years say the place is a total fluke it really didn't break like that every single day he just made that up to sell the movie interesting um but that entered into the into the mind of surfers of what a perfect wave was supposed to look like and this quest for a perfect wave. Now, again, I, I, turning back to a couple of factors to keep in mind, um, and this is a little bit of a deep dive into surfing history. Um, the Endless Summer came out, um, was filmed in like the mid 60s, and it was right before uh, an important period of time that happened in surfing, uh, in the development of surfing, which we call the shortboard revolution. Um, all, 1967 was the last year that surfers ex- exclusively rode longboards, boards nine feet and longer. A nine-foot longboard was considered short at that time. Ten foot was about the average when it came to when it came to board design. Pretty much all surfboards um, based off of Dale Velzi's pig uh, model from 1958, I think. Um, so um, 
1967, so the summer of like, or so like right on the bridge of 1967, 1968 is when a bunch of very experimental kind of hippie like guys inspired by a surfboard designer named George Greeno um, started um, started experimenting with cutting their boards really small and and trying some different things around that time was the was when they was when people like jerry lopez and um, david nueva and others um i I probably have my figures wrong so some historian would correct me on this but um were the first to successfully ride a wave in the north shore of oahu called pipeline um the bonsai pipeline was featured for decade for like a decade in surf movies during the wipeout reel. People had tried to surf it, but it was considered impossible to surf. But that was because they were using these huge boards with um, with the, the, the way the boards were designed just weren't conducive for riding in the barrel at pipeline. Once they started shortening the boards, they were able to design boards that could get into the barrel long and ride pipeline. So pipeline was not ridden. It was it was it shows up in the endless summer as a joke as like this super dangerous spot that crazy people try to serve. But it was not successfully ridden until after the endless summer had come out. Pipelines, the, the, the writing of pipeline radic and coupled with the development of shortboards completely radical, radically transformed surfing and the idea of what makes a perfect wave. A lot of people would now say that pipeline is a perfect wave. Um, but raises all kinds of other questions then as surfboard is de- as surfing is developed is what are you trying to do okay so in, ni- in the mid 1960s surfers are trying to trim glide and nose ride maybe get a little bit under the lip of the wave not necessarily deep barrel riding but just trying to glide as, and stay as uh, stay riding on the wave as long as possible that was the goal of surfing at that point so the wave of Cape St. Francis is perfect because it's perfect for the kind of surfing that people are doing at the time Pipeline is considered perfect in the 70s because that's everyone's trying to get barreled. And so it for its time, it's definitely perfect. Now, in terms of its mechanics and how it breaks and all of that, it's consistent. It doesn't section all you know when the wave when the wind conditions and swell direction is right. Um it's you know, it it, it it's perfect in that regard. But and then and then Bruce Brown, who made a sequel to the Endless Summer in the 80s, um, brings this up, which is that um which is that perfection and what we consider a perfect wave is actually really dependent on who's riding boards and like what, or what, what they're riding and how they're surfing. Guys who are doing um, aerial surfing, who are like using their surfboards to kind of ramp off of waves like skateboarding, yeah. they actually don't want hollow barreling waves because you can't really do those kinds of tricks. You actually want kind of chunky, sloppy, onshore blown out conditions because those waves ramp a little better for aerial surfing. So for them, perfect conditions would look like to the rest of us, like people like me who like longboard would be like, I'm not even going out. But a guy who does aerial surfing would be like, this is awesome. Hmm. So, so anyway, I mentioned this because um, Endless Summer put the idea of a perfect wave. Bruce Brown later sort of course corrected on that and said it was kind of bull to begin with. But that didn't stop a whole range of surfers from trying to chase this idea of a perfect wave. The difference is, is Kelly Slater, who is a, who's a multimillionaire because of his professional surfing life, decided to make it. Rather than try to find it, he decided to make it. Hmm. And um, and again, so there is an element of perfection in that that wave looks like the one from Cape St. Francis in the endless summer, right. in terms of that of that ideal of perfection. But all of the stuff surrounding it is where I'm curious of: is it really perfect? Because what is the nature of surfing? 
is surfing actually being in the ocean or a large body of water and sort of being at the whims of nature? Or is it something that you manufacture? And these, I, and I'm, we, I am not the first person at all to bring up this conversation. It is something that servers have been talking about for years now. Um, and, um, but I think for us, like using that as a jump off point to talk about just the nature of perfection, because, you know, especially uh, as we think of it in terms of theology as Christians, right? The, the idea of perfection is something that is at the heart of, of Christian belief striving toward perfection while acknowledging that achieving it might be impossible without the grace of God mm-hmm. or is it? Um, and so like, so that, so anyway, yeah, this very heady complicated <laughs> thing uh, to get <clears> us to start talking about what we think of when we think of perfect. And I'm curious to hear from you, JP, cause I, a phrase that I hear sometimes in movie blogs um, is people talk about perfect movies, right? What constitutes a perfect movie? It's interesting uh, because I know exactly what you're talking about. That is um, pretty constant. And I think like uh, – all right. This is just my opinion. But usually when I see the words like a perfect movie, I think of a movie that um, is so entertaining you can just completely overlook its flaws. Like its flaws don't even matter. You don't really even factor into it. You could sit down and you can identify the flaws. But if you – enjoyed yourself like had maximum fun while watching it that's probably a perfect movie you know and even and 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 especially um if they're a bit rough around the edges the the flaws are kind of what makes it entertaining as well you know see you're getting at you're getting at what i think constitutes perfection yeah which i think is an eastern a more Eastern understanding of perfection. When I, cause when I've heard people talk about a perfect movie, what I get the sense of is that they're talking about, um, things like, you know, well, there's technical aspects of it. You know, do, do, does the actual like framing of a shot, um, the editing, the, the, the interplay with the way the script works with what's on the screen, like do all those things, you know, are they all clear? And do you walk away from that movie saying like, Oh, that was, you know, like it was flawless. I have no, you know, like I can't, I can, I could definitely say like, you know, I, I watched a lot of horror movies during the month of October. I mean, I watched a lot of horror movies anyway. Um, but I revisited, uh, sort of a classic favorite of mine and that I haven't watched in a while. Cause I think I watched it too much when I was in college and high school and stuff. And you know, how you, watch something over and over again, it kind of loses its potency, and you're just like, oh, right. I've seen it so many times. <clears throat> but I revisited Fright Night, which is a, an 80s vampire movie. It's sort of a mix between, like, uh, Rear Window, but, like, with a vampire in it, and it takes place during the 80s. So, like, it definitely, it's it's very 80s. Right, one of the best posters. Yeah, definitely. I love Fright Night's poster. Great poster. Um, um, and it's, 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 uh, I I watched it and I had so much fun watching it. When it was over, I was like, "That's a perfect movie," and it's like I could go on about things that like that it that certain things, certain criteria that it nails for me to call it perfect. For one, the cast um, they have uh, um, um, uh, Roddy McDowell plays like a uh, Peter Cushing 
type character who used to be like in hammer horror films, you know, Van mm-hmm. Helsing type character. For those of you who don't know who Roddy McDowell is, how dare you? Um, <laughs> Roddy McDowell is sort of famous for playing Cornelius in Planet of the Apes and um, a bunch of other Planet of the Apes sequels that you probably haven't watched. Um, and so that's perfect for me because I love Planet of the Apes. Uh, Roddy McDowell is also in, gosh, what else was he in that he's kind of famous for? That's sort of his B-movie affair is the Planet of the Apes stuff. Uh, he's a great actor. <clears throat> um, but this is sort of like in the 80s at a time when like you had these sort of veteran actors kind of doing genre stuff that I think, in my opinion, was sort of inspired by like people like Peter Cushing and Alec Guinness starring in Star Wars. And mm-hmm. um, 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 oh, what's his name? Dr. Loomis in Halloween. Why am I blanking his name? Um, let's see. Why is it not? Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance. These were like legendary actors, right? Legendary mm-hmm. British actors. And then they started acting in like these 80s movies. Like sci-fi films, horror films. Um, they all, but they are also also uh, all in Hammer horror films as well. <clears throat> so anyway, I say all that because that's to me that's that's an aspect of perfection at a performance like that in a movie like this. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then you have like um, the lesser known actors who are in it who give performances of a lifetime, and then they disappear for like forty years. And that's uh, this character named Evil Ed who has who, who's given like all the uh, you know all the punchy lines in the movie movies that all your friends quote. Um, He's not a very good actor, but like, just, just, that's the thing. Not a good actor, but like, you just, you can't keep your eyes off of it. You quote him all the time. And like, you, you can't imagine the movie without him. Um, so maybe he's good, but like for that movie, I don't know. And then just the story is not perfect. It's fine. It's serviceable, but, but so what do you, but that's it. What do you mean by it's not perfect? Like what would make it perfect? A story. Yeah. Um, if the A to B to Z, like, like made sense. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, no... so that, right. So that's the, that's the technical pieces. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, like, there's there's things that happen, and they're like, come on, you're really going to do that. You know what I mean? But it's like, you're, you're having so much fun, you don't care. In fact, you kind of want them to sort of lean into it. <laughs> lean mm-hmm. into the to the to this thing that you're doing wrong and see where we can go. And, um... I don't know. I guess it's like looking at a, like a Jackson Pollock painting, you know, um, who I, I mean, I guess, I don't know. Did he become like a controversial figure lately? I don't know. Something about the CIA. I don't, I don't know. Everyone's controversial, man. <laughs> who knows? We're not perfect. So therefore we're all controversial. There's something wrong with all of us. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't know. And then there's, there's the special effects aspect, which are great and utilized like really well. You know, it, it's, when I when I think of special effects, especially back then, that are very practical, we had no CGI. Um, so like you had, it, you can't just put a special effect in front of a camera because you're gonna see the seams. You gotta light it right. You gotta be able to uh, composition it right with the camera. You gotta reveal it at the right time. There's a part where the love interest in this in the story becomes a vampire, and um, the face that's on the famous poster, that's her face. And the part where that is revealed is scary as hell. Like the first time I saw it when I was a kid, it like made me jump out of my bed. Um, so 
it's just things like that, you know. It's not just like, oh, here's a special effect. It's like, what's going on? Oh my god, you know, everything is done with a with a specific technique. Mm-hmm. Um, that if we're done with anybody with a, any kind of lesser quality, it wouldn't be as good. Um, yeah, that, that that particular piece, like I think of in um in um J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek. Yeah. Um the way that you have these shots where you just see in the background, the skyline of some huge city or something. Mm-hmm. And you never, you never zoom in on it. There's no like, there's no like, like, Ooh, look at how, look at how, you know, elaborate this CGI model is. Yeah. It's just there to build atmosphere. Yeah. And, and so and, that's, that's an effective use of a special effect. And for, from what I understand, um, JJ Abrams, was very inspired by like John Ford's cinematography mm-hmm. uh, from like his old Westerns and stuff. They were shot in like, um, Oh, what's that Valley called in Utah that like every Western takes place in, in from the fifties. Oh, a uh, monument, monument Valley, monument Valley. Yeah. He's sort of inspired by the sort of the, the way he would shoot monument Valley. And that actually kind of inspired that, uh, 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 informs a lot of cinematography in the Star Trek movies. Apparently that's what, that's what he said. Hmm. So and you know John Ford considered by many filmmakers to be a perfect filmmaker, um, with his just his style of uh, camera work and stuff. So I say all that to say that you know, as someone who loves movies um, and art, I think I've spent the, the better half of like the past few years, past decade, just sort of not really being interested in finding the perfect whatever. But finding things that are like more rough around the edges, like I, I've sort of shied away from trying to think like to find like the perfect movie, and trying to find movies that where where perfection is not really on anyone's mind. Mm-hmm. And it's it's more fun. <laughs> like I, I've, right. I've had, I've, I feel like I found a, a more interesting collection of films. Than I have. Yeah. If I was just going to watch, try to be like, I got to watch all the perfect movies. I got to watch all the best films. Well, I think what we're getting at a little bit is, you know, so I'm I'm, I'm a student of postmodern theology and philosophy, you know, a little bit. And um, one of the things that that we that, that that is discussed in that realm is the way that we've moved we've moved out of the out of the the impact of the Enlightenment. For for our listeners, in case you don't know what we mean by the Enlightenment, it is the intellectual underpinnings of American society. It's uh, the philosophy of people like Hobbes and Locke. Um, It gave rise to um, the scientific method and a lot of of things we take for granted. Um, But it basically established that there are objective, neutral ideals that we are supposed to sort of conform ourselves to or whatever. Um, that's a way oversimplified definition. <laughs> but um, I mentioned that because a, I think a lot of our, I think a lot of our notions of perfection, like what you're talking about that you're trying to avoid, are enlightenment influenced ideas that there's some sort of objective standard by which all things are judged and whether or not they measure up to that objective standard is the, the degree to which they are perfect or imperfect. Mm-hmm. And I think we are in an era now and wider society is sort of catching up to it that that kind of idea 
of perfection is perhaps dangerous um, at times, um, but that it's also just not real because it doesn't occur naturally, Mm -hmm. right? Like beauty for whatever, like the, the, the definitions of beauty and what someone would talk about looking at a beautiful person and saying that they are flawless. What they're actually saying in a lot of those cases, and a number of people have they've done studies to find this, is that they're talking about the nature to which something is symmetrical. Right. Symmetry. Um, but symmetry, nothing is nothing naturally occurs. You know, there's nothing, there's no symmetry in nature. Everything is odd numbered, everything has bumps, and you know, nothing is perfectly symmetrical in nature. Like that just doesn't happen. Right, yeah. Um and so except the xenomorph except the xenomorph right it's a perfect creature it's a perfect specimen that's yeah yeah according to a robot perfect organism sorry <laughs> um so that but but that idea right of of perfection as we see it in that regard right so if we're going to say that something beauty is is you know that the most beautiful thing is therefore the most symmetrical thing well that that's that's alien. Like that doesn't exist in our universe. That's something that we have to invent. And so we have to impose it. And by imposing it, we are doing a sort of violence or getting back to Kelly Slater, you know, he had to dig up a chunk of the desert in order to put, in order to create the perfect wave. Right. So he had to commit an act of violence on a desert, right. You know, to then put water in a desert to be able to have this wave. I mean, I guess he could have done it anywhere, but it's still interesting that, you know, this act of violence. And and we look at all the things that people do in terms of plastic surgery and other things where they do violence to themselves in order to achieve some standard of perfection or the way that, you know, uh, uh, people like Martin Luther used to like, you know, flagellate himself because he wasn't measuring up to perfection. You know, just the, the a lot of the stuff that people do, the violence that's committed in order to try to achieve this sense of, of perfection that is impossible to attain because it doesn't really exist or does it, which I can get to that theologically in a moment. But maybe the reality for us is less about trying to, you know, achieve that, but is there to sort of recognize the perfection that is right. That it's already there. We just, our criteria for how we think about perfect perfection is what's off. So like you mentioned, watching a movie to you that you say is perfect, it shows its flaws. Mm-hmm. That's a very Zen-like approach. Within, um, within, within Zen aesthetics is this concept known as wabi-sabi. It's a Japanese concept where things are meant to be imperfect. Um, like, a, like a wabi-sabi-style teacup is not going to be symmetrical. Like wabi-sabi pottery is not – it's going to have, you know, little like bumps and – you know, the, the rim is going to be kind of crunchy and, you know, it's not going to look perfect. And that's meant to, that's meant to emphasize the idea that nature, nature does have a perfection and that our, our criteria of perfection is the problem right. that we need to sort of appreciate the flaws that are there because the flaws themselves are what make things per- perfect. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I, it kind of isn't it sort of generally accepted, like in in like scientific communities that like like the the circle or like a ball is considered to be like perfect. 
like the yes. perfect shape. And isn't it because it kind of goes back to like the atom? That's the shape of the atom. So I think it's yeah. kind of interesting because you know when you think of the earth and and life and and people and it's not perfect. Like it's you know you let uh, I, I live on a farm. If if I don't touch it for a week, that it's just disgusting. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's made up of perfect atoms. You know. Yeah, but like you look at when we start getting down into that level, you know, you see that things are in a fractal nature, right? And so, and and the fractal nature of reality is that it it isn't perfect, right? In order for it to work, it has to be like, you know, because like we talk about odd numbers and even numbers, right? Yeah. And we say that even numbers are perfect because they're perfectly divide, divisible. Right. But nothing in nature is odd, is even numbered, right? Like things that like in general, I mean, obviously you have like twins and stuff like that, but like a lot of things that the way they occur, well, like what, got, what brought this to my attention was years and years and years ago, um, I first discovered the high-speed photography of Harold or Eugene whatever his name is. He's this famous high-speed photographer, one of the first people to pioneer the technique. He's either Harold or Eugene something. Anyway, he um, he's a guy who, like, you have the photo of, like, the bullet going through a, an apple. Right, yeah. Like that famous photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's another famous one of a, of a droplet. It's like he dropped something into, a, into, like, a dish of milk, and he captured the splash that, come up, that came up from the droplet. What, what blew me away is when you count the droplets that are kind of, that are coming up, mm. they're odd numbered. They're not even numbered. Hmm. And when you look at, when you look at snowflakes under a microscope, they don't evenly distribute in their formation, you know, and they're also odd numbered. So, you know, so the, but symmetry is all about even divisibility. Right. And I mean, sort of, I guess, I guess you could argue like a maple leaf is symmetrical, even though it's an odd numbered thing. Um, but either way, like once you get down into even the smallest levels, you realize that, you know, things are bumpy. Things are, you know, perfect spheres don't happen naturally. Um, I mean, isn't even, it's been a while since I've taken my science classes, but isn't it even the case with atoms that they can't have an even number of things orbiting them, right? Don't they have to shut off like an electron based off of the number? No idea, dude. Okay. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> so, so someone can correct me on that. But, yeah. I, but anyway, I just think that it's it's interesting that again, like our ideas of perfection are are these sort of arbitrary notions that we came up with, and basically we thought, you know, and if we want to bring another level to it, because we were, you know, because it was I was a white straight male, therefore I am, in you know, I am the smartest person on the planet, and my ideas of perfection you know, are right. free from emotion and they are free from all this stuff. And therefore this is what makes something perfect. But, but that criteria itself might be flawed. Yeah. And if you just, I don't know, like I kind of feel like perfection is flat. Like if you just see it, like, like I'm looking at, there's a tree outside of my office right now. And like the tree is perfect. Like I think the tree is perfect. It, you know, cause it, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's, you know, it's metabolizing ultraviolet light and and all of that and growing and, and converting, you know, carbon dioxide into oxygen. And, you know, even though it doesn't, even though it's not like symmetrical or whatever, like doesn't mean it's not perfect. Right. Right. And even the violence, like I'm looking like there's broken branches on it. There's scarring, you know, those things are, 
you know, they've happened because, you know, somebody cut it down or, or a hurricane blew something off or, you know, or something like that happened. But even then, like the way that it's responding to that, to that damage and that injury, that's perfection. Mm-hmm. Cause it's, you know, I, I just, it, I it just, I don't know. That, that's, I can go on, but okay. this episode's getting to a weird place. <laughs> it's fine. We'll, we'll, let's talk about like, what is something that is perfect to you and, and why would you call that perfect? The McDonald's double cheeseburger. <laughs> okay, hold on a second. Are you talking about the Big Mac or no. the McDouble? No, the double cheeseburger. The double cheeseburger. Tell See, us why you think the double cheeseburger is is perfect. First, let me explain. We all know what a Big Mac is. The McDouble is BS. <laughs> why is it BS? Because McDonald's created the McDouble in order to save a few, in order to put it on the dollar menu to save a few cents to shave off um, um, on cheese. The McDouble huh. is is the double cheeseburger with one fewer slice of cheese on it. Huh. Um, and I don't know really, but no. So the double cheeseburger, the McDonald's double cheeseburger, is is a is a is a standard McDonald's item, which is bun, meat patty, slice of cheese. Meat patty, slice of cheese, pickle, onion, ketchup, mustard, perfection. Hmm. And I say this because all the flavor, well, one, the McDonald's double cheeseburger does not pretend to be anything other than what it is. Okay. It's not trying to be gourmet. It's not trying to, it is, it is a, it, it is, it is the like platonic ideal of what a fast food cheese well, this is, is. We're getting into interesting territory now because Anthony Bourdain, God rest his soul. Yes. Um, yes. He actually had a definition of a perfect burger and I want to, and, and I'll tell you what that is when you're, whenever you're done. So keep going. Okay. You're okay. Um, the, the other thing is, is that all of its flavors are perfect, are, are, are balanced. Okay, so there's a symmetry piece, but it, but you know, anyway, but like balance and harmony happen in nature, so we can we can we can say that that's not a intrusion, but the flavors they're harmonious and balanced in what they are and what in, in in what's happening in the burger. Um, I have had a regular McDonald's cheeseburger, mm-hmm. and I find that there's too much bread. Oh yeah, it's it it's not, and I have had a triple cheeseburger. Too much meat. Yeah, and when there's it, too it much meat. The, the grease, their their burgers are very greasy. Yeah. So if you have too much meat, you've got a lot of grease. That's why those those double quarter pounders. It's just a it's just a ball of grease between two buns. Right. Well, <laughs> and the signature flavor and the signature flavor of McDonald's of McDonald's uh, burgers is um is black pepper. Okay. And so when you have too much meat, you it's too much of a peppery flavor. I've even had the double cheeseburger where I've added bacon to it, mm. and it throws the whole thing off. Because then you, suddenly you taste the bacon, and it, it, and it, 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 but you don't get the perfect balance of onion, pickle, mustard, ketchup, cheese, meat. So I've, I've tried multiple variations on this. I've even experimented on my wife, who always got the single cheeseburgers. And I told her, I said, double cheeseburger is perfect. And she says, no, it's not. The single cheeseburger is perfect. I said, no, I'm telling you. I said, it's too much bread. If you have a double cheeseburger, you will know what I'm talking about. It is perfect. After years of kind of pestering her about this, she finally ordered a double cheeseburger with me. And she took one bite and she said, you were right all along. (laughs) The double cheeseburger is perfect. And again, it doesn't, and, and part of it too is that it's not insisting on being anything other than what it is. Right, it's not trying to be a gourmet food item. It's not trying. It, it just it is happy to be a peppery, greasy fast food burger. It is also a good size 
mm-hmm. for it to, to eat and it's you know it and it and you feel like you've eaten something it doesn't feel like something you've just thrown down the hatch and moved right. on you know anthony bourdain and it's interesting you say that because anthony bourdain's definition of a perfect burger and you have to understand there are so many celebrity chefs who you know you look at their burger recipes and it's like they do so much to it so right. much like you look at gordon ramsay's like recipe for a burger and it's like no one can make that <laughs> you know what i mean uh but anthony bourdain's perfect burger is meat cheese bun that's it interesting the more processed the cheese the better and the bun, not not none of this uh, Hawaiian roll, uh, potato bun, uh, 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 ciabatta bun, whatever nonsense. Just a bun you get at a grocery store. You can have sesame seeds; it's up to you. But just a bun, and that's it. You can add you can add ketchup, you can add mustard if you want. Like again, it's all it's all to taste. But right. the perfect burger is bun, meat, cheese, processed cheese. More process, better. <laughs> okay, yeah, because I mean, I can see where I, I mean, I can see where you you know, there's a preference piece, yeah. right? Um, in all of this, um, um, the um, it, it makes me think of makes me think of an article that I read many many years ago in like the Metro Weekly or whatever. You know, those little big like you know format magazines that are free at like you know, Howley's here down. Yeah. And, um, I was reading through that once and there was a whole article calling bull on the gourmet, um, the gourmet grilled cheese trend. Do you remember that? And yeah, yeah. And, Cause it didn't, it kind of start with the movie chef. Cause there's like a whole sequence in that where he's like, he's making the perfect grilled cheese. I think even Matt tried doing that once. I wish he were here. Cause we, we've definitely played with that. Yeah. So that article pointed out that, that that there's a that the, the sort of the key like the key philosophy of a grilled cheese yeah is that it is basic like it's it, it's basic it's taking kind of really basically i mean basically like food stamp food mm-hmm. and making something with it and so their argue the argument that that was in that article was that to to make a grilled cheese with anything but like Wonder Bread, butter, and Kraft Singles yeah. is you're creating something else. You're not creating a grilled cheese. Mm-hmm. You're you're making some you're making some other kind of sandwich. And I kind of on board with that idea. Because... I am too. And there's a great there's a subreddit that's all devoted to grilled cheese. And let me tell you something: they're militant about what constitutes a grilled cheese. A lot of a lot of photo a lot of photos show show up on grilled cheese. Uh, where people make grilled cheese sandwiches, they put like mushrooms in there and stuff. Like, nope, that's a melt. Right, it's not a grilled cheese. <laughs> well, let's. I, I can take it to a little bit more sophisticated level. The martini. Okay, yeah. Martini. The martini is perfect. When well, when there's, there's the dry martini and then there's a dirty martini. So no, no, no. The dirty martini is a different drink. Okay. All right. Right. The martini. Now, this is. I mean, people about the whole. Mar- if you know anything about the but with martinis, people get really like, <laughs> really into what makes a martini. One of my favorite lines I've ever read is that the proper amount of vermouth in a martini is to stir your glass, uh, to sort of shake your glass in the general direction of Italy. <laughs> um, Jeez. But I think that you know the like splash of vermouth, 
you know, gin. It has to be gin. Vodka is not a martini. It's actually there's there's a name for what we call a vodka martini. There, I can't remember. It's called like a. I wish I can't remember. It's it, there's a there's actually a name for that drink. Um, that's not vodka martini. Um, but gin, a little bit of vermouth, but gin, of course, that's stirred over ice, mm-hmm. you know, or all that stirred over ice and then poured into the chilled glass. You know, you can add a little bit of olive or a twist of lemon, which is really the the more proper way of in traditional way of doing it. Yeah. But the thing about a martini and what makes a martini perfect, and again, you have your variations on your preferences and whatnot. But is that the very essence of of it's it's an austere, simple cocktail mm-hmm. that allows that that's really about the botanical flavors of the gin to be able to give room to taste right that's really the point of a martini mm-hmm. um and and so so perfection in terms of a martini is is you know and once you start adding a bunch of olive juice or whatever like okay sure you've 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 made it i think you've made a new drink and that's fine you can find that to be perfect but I think the very nature of what makes a martini a martini is something very simple. Again, like Bourdain's idea with a cheeseburger. It's actually very simple. Right. That perfection doesn't need to be complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so um, so yeah, the, the McDonald's double cheeseburger is perfect, just like I feel in terms of other food items, the, um, the Chick-fil-A number one combo. Not with a lemonade, but with tea. Oh, is, is, is okay. Well, and not not the spicy. Chicken I do like the spicy. Actually, I really like the spicy. Yeah, as well. But that, but I that one's kind of for me. Actually, I think completely more just personal preference or whatever. Um, I think I think the I think the McDonald's double cheeseburger is an objective standard of perfection. <laughs> You're probably I, right. I really, I really do. Yeah, and you know, I I, I maybe I don't know. I was gonna try it take something from Taco Bell that could be considered perfect. Cheesy gordita crunch. Now, I was about to think that's that was on my mind, the cheesy gordita crunch, but, but it's almost too much though. It's empty calories. There's well, no, the there's no the cheese- reason for a tortilla and a crunchy tortilla and crunchy taco to be fused together with cheese. There's no reason for it. Well, and the thing with the cheese gordita crunch is I, it's, I, I can't order it the way it's served because I actually don't like the Baja sauce and all that stuff on it. Oh, I, love the Baja I like it just meat cheese, you know, that's it. No lettuce, any of that. But, um, but that, again, like I think the McDonald's double cheeseburger is one of these things that if you de- once you deviate from the basic offering, it loses something, and so therefore it's perfect. That's interesting, yeah, and it's true, and it's 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 that is like the the cheeseburger, you know, argument because so many people try to do different variations: blue cheese, turkey, mushrooms, l- lots of bacon, <laughs> and it's like. No, you just kind of it's just it just kind of stops being a cheeseburger after a while, and it's just like a bunch of meat between two buns. Yeah, you know. Um, I, I, I will, I will, I will say one thing though that 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 gets that I also think hits certain gets close to hitting some notes of perfection once you do it right is I have had the Impossible Whopper. Yeah. Um, with cheese, and I basically do all the ingredients. It's on the. McDonald's double cheeseburger. Yeah. And for what the impossible burger is, I think is is very good. But um but I have to I have to experiment more with you have more experience with with that food item. I know Funston and I have talked about this a little bit cuz um he said that he has had it at restaurants in Kansas that where they they cook the impossible whopper or the impossible burger rare. Mm-hmm. 
and he says it's so much better than whatever McDo- whatever Burger King's doing with it. But because um, they have a tendency to cook it to crap at Burger King. Yeah. But um, that's a whole other conversation. But anyway, yes. Well, I think this this is an interesting evolution in this conversation because we've talked about surfing, you know, sports. Right. We've talked about uh, art. I'm going to talk about Fright Night and stuff. It's a perfect movie. And uh, a little bit of science, uh, talking about nature and things like that. And now we're talking about food. And I feel like food is where we're kind of having, even though we've talked about two things we're very passionate about, surfing and movies, we seem to be more authoritative when it comes to food. <laughs> <laughs> we seem to be like, oh, man, anything can, any, any movie can be great. You know, any, any wave can be the perfect wave. Now we're like, no. Uh, this is how you make a burger. This is how you make it. Uh, like, I think it's, I think it's interesting. Like we have a higher standard. Of what makes perfect food than we do for the things that we're actually kind of passionate about. Maybe we're just passionate about food. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean that, I mean, I, I, but it's honestly, this is something I have thought about for years, for years mm-hmm. is um, I, I, it was cause I didn't eat McDonald's growing up like ever. And there was something I used Keelan, friend of the show for those who haven't, he hasn't been on here in years, but, um, he was the one I think he convinced me to get, he, he was talking about the double cheeseburger and I was like, ah, oh, whatever. And I had one and I was like, no, 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 no. Like, and I've thought about it over the years. I'm like, this, this actually, like, I'm kind of over the whole gourmet burger scene. I'm kind of over all of that stuff. I, I kind of feel like, nah, this is, this is what a cheeseburger is. And, yeah. he, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with the other things. I'm not trying to say that if you, if you prefer, you know, some, you know, you know, Gordon Ramsay style, you know, Wagyu beef cheeseburger with like boysen cheese on it or whatever, like, you know, and Hollandale sauce or what Hollandaise or whatever, like knock yourself out. That's cool. Go for it. You know, like there's nothing wrong with it. But I think that when we talk about sort of, like I said, like sort of the platonic ideal of what makes a cheeseburger a cheeseburger, I think the McDonald's double cheeseburger is about as close as you can get to it. And to me, like that's the, it's like the, it's the standard by which other things can be judged. Yeah. Um, some things may taste better. That, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's a subjective thing. But I think in terms of, when we talk about perfection, I think that's something that makes for per- perfection. I also think, um, I also think that Paul Simon's Graceland is perfect. Okay. Uh, an album we've talked extensively about. Uh, mm-hmm. Check out that episode from our first Music Mayhem. Yeah, because my my criteria for that is that there's nothing wasted on that album. I see. Everything is very intentional, um, and and does what it needs to do. Like it's very, um, um, yeah. And I, I also say my my thinking on perfection, and I really wish Matt were here because it would make him so mad. Um, my thinking on perfection is actually inspired by a scene from Tron Legacy. <laughs> okay. Um, which is not a perfect movie. No, no. Um, I don't think, um, is, um, but there's a scene where, um, where Sam and, um, um, and Kevin Flynn, um, are escaping from the, the, um, end of line bar and they're on the solar sailor and they're having a conversation and, um, Kevin Flynn, Jeff Bridges' character, who's been inside his computer world for like a century or something, based off of the way that time tr- tr- time works in there, um, has he, he he went in when his son was a little kid and never when it was was unable to get out, and his son finally you know twenty years later or whatever has come back in to, and is accidentally got into the computer system and found 
uh, his dad, Jeff Bridges, who hasn't seen for most of his life. And they're having this conversation catching up. And one of the things that, that Kevin Flynn says is that he spent all this time trying to chase for perfection and achieve perfection when he should have realized it was right in front of him the whole time. Mm-hmm. And when he says that, he's looking at his son, Sam. And so there's just, you know, there's just, it's a t- sort of a tender thing where he's realizing that he's neglected his son in pursuing something that he already had all along if he just stopped to recognize it. And I feel that as a father now. Like, I look at my, my boys, and I, I, and I think about that line and that scene a lot with my with my two with my two sons in that like perfection you know perfection i think is it might be more of a feeling yeah than some objective standard that we are supposed to that we're supposed to um conform ourselves to and i think well i i want to let you talk about because i think you brought that notion up that it was a feeling earlier i want you to talk about that because i i want to talk a little bit about theology because i think some of our listeners are going to wonder where I, as a priest, I want to take this theologically, but um, okay. did you want to say something about feeling? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was saying, I, I feel like it's, it, since it's, since it's so subjective, then it really is just how something makes you feel. And, you know, I, I kind of went into the weeds on, on, on Fright Night and I just sort of, I, I kind of forgot for a second um, something that I was taught in film school by uh, one of my film professors that I was shadowing on a, on a shoot and um, that he was directing. And he said something to me on that shoot. That was like a week-long shoot. And he said one thing to me, and that's the one thing that stuck with me for the rest of my life. He said, JP, all you need to make a good movie is good acting and a good story. And then he said, like, oh, we're screwed. But, <laughs> 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 um, but then... Um, and that, that's true. And I think, like, you know, I, I kind of, like I said, I went to the weeds a bit, uh, Fright Night, and all these different elements and stuff. But really, what it comes down to, if I could, I could just say, I think the story makes sense, as flawed as it is, it makes sense. And the acting is, like, my favorite part of it, because I said, I have these great actors in it. And to me, it, it just, it gives you, uh, just at the, end of, at the end of the movie, if you feel like you watched a perfect movie, then maybe it was a perfect film, you know? And it's, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes I don't think it's just like it's not always the amount of effort that's put into it, you know. Especially when we're talking about food, Anthony Bourdain's de- definition of a perfect cheeseburger. I mean, my dad can make the perfect cheeseburger, then I can make it. Right. Um, you know, your double cheeseburger. If you want to experience perfection, apparently, go to McDonald's and order that double cheeseburger today. <laughs> we're probably making so many people hungry. Yeah, um, yeah. they're all gonna like they're all gonna eat McDonald's today. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I don't know. That's what I was saying. Like maybe perfection, because there's so many different people have so many different ideas, but they all have the same feeling, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. So maybe that's where perfection lies and how you feel at the end of the day after experiencing whatever it is you think is perfect. Yeah. I, it, it makes me think of something that St. Paul writes in first Corinthians where he says one of his famous lines of the Bible where he says that, um, we see through a glass darkly, but even then only face to face. But when the perfect comes, we'll see perfectly. Um, there, you know, what he's talking about there is he's talking about a mirror, right? Um, I I mentioned that because for the longest time growing up, I, I always envisioned that passage of when he's talking about seeing through a glass darkly, which is the, uh, the King James version of that passage. I was thinking of like that glass that you look through to like see a solar eclipse. Yeah. Like that's what I thought he was talking about, but um, but he's talking about looking at a looking at a mirror, which um, in the time he was writing that was relatively new technology, 
And what mirrors, what most mirrors were for people were, um, were just polished bronze. And, and so polished bronze, you know, unless you were really wealthy, you couldn't get like high clarity in terms of the mirror. And so when he says that you're, you know, we see in a mirror dimly, right? It's a dim image. And even then face to face, you have to get really close to it to kind of make out the details of your own reflection. But then what he, then he says, but when the perfect comes, we'll see perfectly. In other words, something will then come to allow us to see things the way they really are. And I think I'm starting to think more and more that that's what Jesus was trying to or not try. That's what Jesus is doing um, in the Gospels is it's not this Western Christian Augustinian notion of, you know, us being, you know, Calvinistic, us being completely, totally depraved and broken and that God has to fix us. But it's more this realization that we have sort of denied the goodness and perfection that God put in us already, and we deny it in each other. And that what Jesus has come to do is to liberate us from all of that crap so that we're free to actually see this world and this stuff that he made the way it was meant to be seen and interacted with. Because you think about like all throughout the new Testament, all throughout the gospels, you know, Jesus is interacting with people who are considered ritualistically unclean by the religious standards of his day. In other words, they're imperfect. And, and they're, and they're really the people that aren't trying to strive for perfection necessarily. They have, you know, they're lepers or, um, or they're women or they're prostitutes or they're tax collectors or they're Gentiles. There are these people that have these things put on them that say that they're, it's inca- they're incapable of being made perfect, yeah. right? And Jesus is the one who goes to them and basically turns it on the religious people who think they're perfect and says, you know, like, you know, you're the one sort of creating the criteria here. Um, you know, like... Sure, like I'll heal this guy, and now guess what? He's no longer he's no longer ritually impure. Or I'm gonna, you know, like with the woman caught in adultery, he, you know, if you're if you're free from sin, then yeah, he cast a, feel free, cast the first stone, right? So it kind of showing that everybody's, you know, nobody lives up to this standard of perfection that exists in the world, but maybe that liberates us to then be free to see the perfection that is, and that kind of to me reveals a bit of the whole nature of sin is that it's us looking at this world and saying that it's not perfect enough and therefore us trying to impose our self-created notions of perfection on it. I mean, isn't that what Adam and Eve effectively did in the in the in, in Genesis? Mm-hmm. You know, they they've got everything. They're living in what we would say is perfection and they're like, well, you know, you know, we've been told that if we eat this fruit, like it could be better. And so now it becomes like, oh, it's not perfect. It's actually we need to make it more perfect or something. Was an absurd notion as that can be, and that I, so I think that 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 sort of reflects a lot of what we're dealing with, and that we're we're entering into an age maybe where we're getting over some of that stuff yeah. and are able to really perceive that you know the world God created a perfect world. You know, we humans are the ones who got misguided along the way and have started kind of imposing stuff on it and missing that perfection. You know, uh, you know, when we talk about original sin, when we talk about the idea that sin, you know, that Adam and Eve's sin somehow affected all of humanity. Well, according to the scriptures, we were the only we were the only creatures that sinned. You know, the tree didn't sin. The. The, the the bobcat hasn't sinned the you know like nothing else in creation is sin so therefore it's not impacted by 
it, it, it itself is not under a curse if you're going to use that language, but rather it is now vic- it is now a victim of us imposing on it all this crap that we've, you know. So again, we get into that, those notions of violence and stuff that we already talked about. Um, so that I mean, I'm just that's sort of where some of my thinking is right now. I don't know, you know, if I'm fully on board with it, but it's something I've been pondering a lot lately in that's the past couple of years. Yeah. yeah. Well. I think we've covered all the ground we could probably cover when it comes to <laughs> us pontificating on uh, perfection. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. There's one other thing that's perfect. Okay. What? Our podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> definitely say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you know. I think there's another perfect item on the McDonald's menu, if, if, if I may. Ooh, can I guess? Sure. They're fries. No, I don't think they're perfect. I think they're perfect for about five minutes. Oh, fair, fair. <laughs> and, then, and then you've lost it. You have a window. Uh, you got to eat those fries uh, ASAP. No, I was thinking of uh, the sausage biscuit. Hmm. But now that I think of it, I think the lately they've been a little too bready, a little too much biscuit. The too uh, bacon and cheese McGriddle. I've never had a McGriddle before in my life. Oh, the um, <laughs> that was a very ooh. <laughs> no, no, I, I like them. I'm, I'm not, I'm not yeah. gonna be one of those guys. But what's wrong with you? They're in McGriddle. I mean, <laughs> I think they're good. Um, you know, I you know I was I was excited about what um, since we're still talking about McDonald's <laughs> is uh, on the way home from Disney a few weeks ago. We swung through the McDonald's and I saw a blessed sign that I have been looking for for years, years. And I kid you not, like three years easy. Yeah. McRib is back. <laughs> and let me tell you, brother, it was worth it. It, uh, uh, we missed it. I, uh, when I found out about it, I, I rushed to McDonald's and they're like, oh, we stopped serving them yesterday. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I missed it by a day. What's, I, I realized in all of this conversation, we've probably alienated our vegan listeners. Yeah, a little bit. Hey, we mentioned Sorry. the Impossible Burger. I did talk about the Impossible Burger. It's very good. I like it. And it's actually, I, you know, my at this point, my preference would be to get that than anything else. Um, because um, eating beef is going to kill our planet. And we got to save the planet. Yeah. That's, that's probably true. All right. Okay. So... All right, that that's that's the episode then. Uh, I'm not <laughs> I'm not I'm not good at ending things. Uh, <laughs> like J.J. Abrams, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll just uh, we'll, let's end it with time travel, right? That's how we ended Felicity. That's Media. right. I forgot he did that. I watched the finale of Felicity and I was furious. You know, people are oh. saying like people are, are speculating that because of the, how he ended Felicity, they're saying that Rise of Skywalker will have time travel in it. I hope to God not. There's something about <laughs> there's something about the notion of time travel in Star Wars that seems that wrong. seems it's like wrong. unforgivable. Yeah. If 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 oh my God. Can you just imagine? I just No. Like here's the here's the only way I would probably allow for any kind of time travel in Star Wars is if it's like the force equivalent of the time turner in Harry Potter. Oh yeah. It's like something like that. Kind of thing. But yeah, but if we're talking, if 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 they intro, if J.J. Abrams introduces like parallel timelines, oh my god! But oh my gosh, I just realized something because okay, so they traveled in time in Felicity. His yeah. Star Trek reboot involved time travel. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! 
yeah, I, I'm telling you right now, if it, it, it's going to be like um, introducing aliens in Indiana Jones. When you said that, in my mind, I went to Xenomorphs uh. in Indiana Jones, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I kind of want to see that movie. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Uh, so, anyway, uh, go out and have some McDonald's and watch, some, watch uh, Miami Connection. That's a perfect day. See? Perfect. Uh, maybe go to the beach if you can. Yeah. I don't know. Catch a catch a wave. It does that does not have to be perfect. Shocker bro. Alright, uh, everyone have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time. Good journey. Good journey. Good journey.